1: The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports gymnast Mike Finch.
2: Um, the purists, are, I would still say, are quite reluctant in terms of competition. And then we've got these really good all-round uh, problem-solving climbers in Boulder and Leeds who are now having to learn to speed climb.
0: Today we are talking about a sport that is one of four new sports in Olympic Games, along with, uh, I think it's karate, surfing, surfing and, skateboarding. and skateboarding. I can't believe skateboarding is an Olympic sport, but uh, I used to do that in my youth, and I was just obviously a bit late on that. But today we're talking about climbing, and we're very privileged to have Oli Tor, who is the founder and coach of Lattice Coaching and Training. And I'm just looking at, uh, Oli, your uh, your extensive list of qualifications. Um, you've got a sports science first class honors degree a master's degree in strength and conditioning he holds a personal training level three qualification and is a mountain training development coach is that is that a fair summary of uh, your very uh,
2: long cv because it's a it's a lot longer than that that cv isn't it uh thanks very much guys yeah that that's probably the good summary so started off as a uh, passionate climber did what all uh, good sports people do and go to get a degree just to try and get better at the sport they love and it's kind of blossomed from there, really. And I've uh, been working with Lattice Training or for Lattice Training for sort of seven or eight years now. And uh, the company has developed from there. And I've gone back sporadically to university to get the, the other degrees and, and other qualifications.
0: So you're talking to us uh, from Sheffield in the UK. I mean, I see that you guys have been very involved in the GB climbing team over the years. Uh, just tell us a bit more about how you've been involved. I think even at junior level, you've been involved a lot.
2: Yeah, so um, myself and my partner who started the company, Tom Randall, and we've both uh, coached at the GB team, so in the junior squad, uh, coaching the junior athletes and also the adult squads as well. And we played sort of a supporting coaching role in the setup in the GB climbing. And I think from working with those athletes, both within the team and then training them outside of the team, that's actually what got us started going down the route of physical assessments and trying to get hold of some sort of data behind the sport as well, because at the time there wasn't really any. Um, there was a few different sort of researchers going uh, going into the depths of things, but we kind of started off by working with those GB athletes and and using them as our little sort of guinea, uh, guinea pigs. Hmm just, I mean, you've done some great stuff
0: yourself in terms of the, the, the you kind of exploit yourself as a climber. So you've, you've done the North Face of the Eiger. And for those of uh, us who are not big climbing, which so even I know how tough that might be. <laughs> just tell us from the climbing community how exciting and what the reaction was when you, when they first heard that climbing was going to be at the Olympics.
2: It it was a mixture of excitement, actually. From I'd say excitement from the majority of the climbing community, and it was such a big step for competition climbing in particular. And we have got a really interesting element of the sport, where because its roots are still based outdoors and it's come from sort of that mountaineering background, there was a subset of the sport that were sort of less excited and worried about losing a sort of adventurous ethos. Mm. but i think now it's been really well accepted and the whole community is behind it and i think just having that sort of highlighting to the rest of the world what we actually do is a really really positive effect on not just for the athletes but for the industry as a whole
0: so when you talk about sport climbing what's the other climbing then what what do you what what what's defined what what do you do if you're not sport climbing
2: well, I guess I guess I'll give you a little uh, brief history on uh, on how it became comp- competitive climbing, mm. that, would, that sort of help.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I guess so
2: it's... so I guess um, so climbing sort of started out in in the modern sense of climbing as a support for mountaineers and mountaineering, like you said. Uh, everyone knows what the north face of the Iger is and we've seen sort of the films and the books and so on. <laughs> um, but the actual modern style of climbing and that, that physical element of the shorter uh, pitches um, is to help those mountaineers get up harder and harder climbs. So what it's now done is those subsets of the sports and those sort of training elements for mountaineering have become their own disciplines. And effectively those disciplines have become shorter and shorter. So we've gone from mountaineers to trad climbing, which is effectively placing your own protection. There's a lot of risk management involved. Mm. And if you search anything scary climbing on YouTube, you're going to see trad climbing. Um, So you can see why that's not been included in the Olympics. (laughs) And then we've got the two other elements, which is sport climbing, uh, known as lead climbing, which is sort of using ropes. We're going to be looking at sort of longer efforts of climbing, uh, and you're going to be clipping your way up the wall, but generally it's safe. And there's a lot of inherent sort of physicality behind that component and discipline. And then we also have bouldering as well, which is much shorter, really dynamic and much more gymnastics. And then finally, we've got the speed climbing, which uh, you guys alluded to watching earlier, which is the racing of the wall at very, very fast paces. Um, so those elements, the track climbing sport and boulder are still done outside. Uh, we see loads of people climbing at the highest level on uh, natural rocks and cliff faces and small boulders that are under those cliff faces. Um, and that's a massive element of the sport itself and probably where most of the money is within the industry right now. Um, but those uh, elements that have been taken to the Olympics are now being seen, it's become more and more popular just on indoor artificial structures. So. You kind of see that there's there's two elements to the sport we've still got the outdoor kind of where it's come from and then we've got this competitive side which is all on artificial faces and sort of man-made structures
1: in terms of sorry time um i, I remember as a kid seeing world championship climbing on an indoor wall so how long is how long has sport climbing existed with the world championships
2: so um i think the the first competition started in around 1985 and i think it was a an Italian sports journalist started off on uh, trying to get the best climbers in the world for a bit of a show. And that was your first sort of lead climbing. And they did that on a a natural cliff. And what they actually did was they had this big natural cliff, limestone, a beautiful mountain, and they just drilled holes into it and made it really a man-made feature. Mm. And they set the hardest climbers off on those routes and it became quite a spectator sport. Um, so the, later on in the 80s, sort of around, eight, I think it was only about a year later, um, we had our first sort of indoor competition, which was had like a massive spectatorship. And that was the first sort of time where it was done on an artificial face. Um, and I think it was like the end of the 80s, so 89 is when we had our sort of first World Cup, which was the speed climbing element and the lead climbing element, mm. so the difficulty element. Mm. And it's pretty much growing from there. Bouldering was introduced in around 98 and sort of the governing bodies had kind of built on from that and they changed the name slightly. So it's now the IFSC um, and it's sort of growing. We have power climbing now, which if you really want to watch something super impressive is seeing uh, someone with visual impairment making their way up the wall, hanging on on really difficult terrain. Um, and obviously we've just been accepted into the Olympics since 2016. So it's, quite,
0: it's quite a new sport, really. Mm. Just uh, I, I'm interested to know, because you're so embedded in the climbing community, what the purists think about the sport climbing aspect of it. Because as you've alluded to there, there's, you know, the, the speed climbing for us non-climbers looks quite spectacular to watch and obviously is like watching the 100 metre final in track and field and it's probably quite good for the exposure of the sport. But do the purists really look at the sport climbing aspect of climbing as climbing or do they see it as sort of uh, well we have to make it competitive somehow it's a bit like triathlon did in 2000 when triathlon became Paralympics in sydney in 2000 and um, they made it draft legal because before it had been non-draft legal and there was a huge amount of people that came along and said well it's not really triathlon anymore it changed the face of the sport purely because of the fact that the olympic games had now judged they had to make it more visually friendly
2: yeah you've, you've hit the nail on the head there really i mean I guess it depends how purist you want to go. Um, the purists are, I would still say, are quite reluctant in terms of competition. It's not, um, quote, unquote, real climbing. And uh, they're still sort of. we've still got the generation of the mountaineers that use climbing as training. Um, but I think generally most people are accepting. The one thing that is a probably quite a big controversy still, and I think we'll notice this on what happens in 2024, is... This is the first time that combined events, so right. Lee Climbing, Boulder and Speed, have all been put together. So previously they would all be their own disciplines, they'll have their own medals. And um, there is a combined event, but it was sort of a sort of sideshow almost, like people weren't too bothered about that. And now this combined format that's been put forward has meant that many of the athletes that competed in lead climbing and bouldering are now having to train a new discipline, which is speed, which they don't like, they've never liked, and they don't particularly want to do. Um, I actually believe that in Paris 2024 they're going to be splitting the disciplines again. So it'll be boulder and lead, and then speed would be separate. Um, so I'd say that's probably still the biggest controversy, but most people have got behind it now, and I, I think you're dead right. It's It's going to be a real spectator spectator sport, and the speed climbing—you can see who's got to the top the fastest. I mean, that's like the most obvious thing in the world, isn't it? To say who's Mm. the best climber there. Yeah. So I really see why they wanted to do that.
1: So I suppose this is a good segue into the format of the Olympics, which you've you've basically covered, now, Is that they're—they're going to have every climber will compete in all three of those disciplines. And then they will be ranked within each discipline. So let's say I come first in bouldering, fourth in speed, and second in lead. The the final calculation will be multiplying my rankings together to give me one score. So what viewers can expect is to basically see a triathlon, like we see a decathlon or a heptathlon in track and field, with a score the result of... Consistency and high ranking. Would that be a fair summation of how the Olympic climbing will work?
2: Yeah, that's a a great summation. I think you've uh, you've, you've done done it perfect there. So, I mean, what's now interesting is you've got, like you said, the combined ranking from each of those disciplines. So now the strategy is do you score low in each of those disciplines and become non-specialized or do you specialize more in one of those disciplines and get a first place, which therefore changes your multiplication to be higher ranked. So the lower the number, the higher the ranking, right. isn't it?
1: So, so you're saying there, sorry, so basically, do I want to be 1 times 2 times 30, or do I want to be 10 times 4 times 7 or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: That's um, That's kind of been the interesting thing is you'll have many athletes in the past that would potentially score in the top five for both Boulder and... Uh, lead, yeah, and you might have the same person winning in both, which has happened multiple times, but then they would score 30th in the speed, or they wouldn't even rank in the speed. Um, however, you would have many of the speed climbers who would come first, second, third in the speed, but because the physical uh, nature of the sport and the difference in problem solving is so varied they might not even qualify for the final semi or even semi-finals in both the boulder and the lead. Mm. So what we now see in our Olympic list is a mixture of specialized speed climbers who have started to try and learn to boulder and lead climb at a different level. And then we've got these really good all-round problem solving climbers in boulder and lead who are now having to learn to speed climb. Mm. Uh, So it's going to be, It'll be really really interesting to see what the final results will
1: be from that. I saw a quote reading about the controversy because I, I gather what's happened here is that the IOC has said you can be in the Olympics climbing but we're going to give two gold medals one for men one for women and therefore we need to find a way to get climbing into one event per sex and they've said all right well we don't want to sacrifice one of the disciplines so we'll combine them And I saw a quote in response to that saying that asking a bouldering specialist to do speed is like asking a 5,000 meter runner to run 100 meters or vice versa. So are they that physiologically different?
2: Um, I think they are. There's definitely comparisons physiologically which do transfer across. And I think physiologically you can definitely see benefits for... If a boulderer and lead climber start to speed climb, what I think the physiology doesn't reward is speed climbers learning to lead or boulder because the variety of the movement patterns involved and the sort of fatiguing elements of the forearm contracts, um, forearm mm. muscles. So for example, um in the speed climb, it's a fifteen meter high wall, which is slightly overhanging, but the difficulty of the climbing on that is actually extremely low. So most people that go to a climbing wall and have been climbing for around six months, maybe a year, could probably get up the speed climb that's in the Olympic finals because it's the same speed climb that's been used for 15 years. Um, However, what they can't do is climb it in 5.4 seconds. So So just just to
0: clarify, when you talk about that wall, is the wall the same in all events? In other words, the format of the holds And obviously the fifteen meters the same, but is the format the same?
1: Standardized, yeah.
2: Yeah. So in the speed climbing, it's completely standardized. So those holds were uh, chosen around fifteen years ago. They were set in a specific organisation on the wall, and it's been exactly the same. So every wall around the world has to buy those holds and set them in exactly the same way to to be used as a speed climbing wall. Um, I don't think they originally set out to have it set that long, to be honest. Uh, I think the idea was to change it every, every sort of cycle of World Cups, but because the times were going down and it was looking dramatic, and I think the complicated factor of people buying the holds and actually buying into the speed climbing element of the sport, um, they've kept it the same. And it's an amazing sport to watch because if you look at actually, if, you, if anyone watches at home or if you look on YouTube, People don't even use most of the holes. So those holes are there, but people are skipping them out and they've created their own methodology of actually getting up the wall. And you'll have one climber who's five foot six in height climbing it very differently to someone who's six foot six, for example.
1: So just to give our, our listeners some perspective when they're looking ahead, what you'll see for speed climbing is two two climbers at a time and it's basically fastest to the top, wins the race and then I gather it's a knockout format. So. A versus B in round one, A wins, eliminates B. Or do you have like a round robin? How will they run that?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so it'll be just head to head heats yeah. all the way working towards a final of two people against each other. Mm. Um, so the way it's going to be working is they'll be attached to sort of a relay system and they're standing on sort of pressure pads at the bottom. Uh, as soon as the buzzer goes, they have to set off and they're hitting a buzzer at the top. So they have to score the fastest um, time in the event, all they've got to do is be that person that they're against. The, um, the bit that's really interesting from the mindset of the speed climbing is it's a purely power event and as you see in track and field with 100 metre sprints, there are false stars. In speed climbing, if someone adjusts on that pressure pad or if they feel like they're leaving and they're about to start climbing, it's an instant disqualification. Wow! So the, it's a very, very strict uh, event and you can have a lot of upsets by that disqualification um, scoring system. Mm. But yeah, it's a, effectively a head-to-head system all the way to the finals.
1: And there's no one body type that then, based on what you've just said about you have know, just developed different ways to, to scale the wall and, and adjusting the technique irrespective of the hold. So yeah, I would have always thought... Longer arms would have been beneficial, but actually then I'm thinking longer levers means greater torque maybe you want shorter arms so what what are you looking at in a speed climber and m- maybe it's the same as lead and bouldering but we can get there in t- in turn let's let's start on speed
2: yeah so um, so speed climbing like you say it's an interesting one where you look at the anthropometrics of the, the athletes involved and um historically you did see a lot of climbers with extremely long arms and Tended to be quite big guys, um, so it's really, really popular in the, sort of the eastern, um, eastern European countries. Sort of Russia uh, have been predominant in that sport for a long time. So you'll see a lot more muscle mass in speed climbers, a lot more lower body muscle mass in particular in speed climbers because you've got that that pull of the arms, very lateral base, pretty much straight arms the whole way up, and then you've got the big push from the lower body muscles as well. So the muscle mass involved can be a lot higher than in the other climbing disciplines. Uh, however, nowadays, because of the methods being used and uh, the, the positions that they're getting in, you've got climbers being much, much shorter now. And their muscle mass is still high compared to the other disciplines, but the climbers that are doing really good are quite short in height, but they're extremely powerful. And um, there's a guy called Reza on uh, that you can follow or have a look at any of his stuff. And he sort of looks like a sort of MMA fighter in t- terms of build, but it's just extremely power-based athlete. And he's the person with the record at the moment of around 5.4 seconds, I believe. Um, and so he, his build is sort of the the type that most people are sort of working towards right now. but. As we know in any sport, and you look mm. at Usain Bolt, fashion changes and and different uh, anthropometrics come through once uh, their sort of muscularity kind of matches their, their needs.
1: Hmm.
0: So to, I think now that we've covered the speed side of things, just to explain now the bouldering and the lead type of Because Is there also is obviously a time limit on those particular climbs, but it's much more technical.
2: Yeah, so, so like I said, speed uh, means that we've had the same route up every time, but Boulder and Lead both require different uh, climbs up uh, in every competition. So we have uh, people that are called route setters. So effectively, what their job is to test the athletes and create a, something that's really good to watch and it's spectacular to watch and it looks difficult, but it's also got to be possible, but very hard. So the idea is a route setter is... They all set boulder problems, so they'll be the boulders, or they'll set lead climbs on the lead wall, which are designed to be progressively harder and split the field by difficulty. Um, So effectively in both disciplines, it's if you get the tops, that's the best case scenario. In bouldering, what we're looking at is sort of a four metre high wall, um, and the format you'll most likely see is four problems on that or four climbs. And they have four minutes to work out and climb that problem. Uh, they'll get four minutes to rest in between each, and they will not be able to see any of the competitor climb it. So a lot of it is problem solving and execution of movement patterns within the, within the time limit that they've been given.
1: So, so they, they, they're, when you say four problems, that's four routes basically.
2: Yeah, so four shorter routes, and yeah. so bouldering for anyone at home is the discipline without any ropes, and they'll just be landing on a soft crash pad. So. You can have multiple attempts within that four minutes.
1: And is a, is a route marked for the sake of the television viewer with different colors? So there's a blue, a red, a yellow, and a green route or something like that? Or or do you just sort of figure it out as you're watching it from the viewer perspective?
2: Um, yeah, they'll, they'll be split up enough. They, it used to be very much color-based, but they, they it'll be in a different section of wall. So you'll know the person who's on ah. that uh, route at the time. It'll have a, a number on it, a start hold that they have to start on. So... And the idea is that the climber has to go into a position that the route set has decided, pull onto the wall, and then they need to try and touch the top hold with both hands successfully um, to get the maximum score. There is a zone as well, so if they get, say, halfway, they get extra points, but every time they fall off, that class is an attempt, and you need to try and get to the top in as few attempts as possible in bouldering. Sure. So, I mean,
0: and, and then so they have they have that time limit um, that they have to finish those sections on. Do they see the course in advance at all or do they only see it on the day of the competition?
2: So it depends whether it's qualifications, uh, semifinals or finals. In the Olympics, there'll be qualifications and finals. Um, they won't see anything beforehand in the qualifications. Um so they'll be going out and they'll be relatively blind, but in finals, they will be able to observe each of the climbs with their competitors, uh, but they won't be able to touch pretty much any of the holds apart from the start holds. Um, so either way, you could, the competitors will talk to each other. They'll kind of chat about the ideas of doing it. And generally in climbing, it's, it's quite a nice uh, sport in the way that the competitors, they're going out there and they are against each other, but effectively they're against the route setters. Like there's The route setters are the bad guys. They're the ones that set the challenge and the climbers are there trying to break the problems and actually do it as fast as possible. So there's a lot of camaraderie in the, in the climbing community and in competitions as well. So it's, it's a very supportive sport. But yeah, you're dead right that most of the time, even with the observations, they've got very little information about how to actually climb up the problems and, and get to the
1: top. So you may have said this, do they change the routes between the qualification and final? Or is the final going to be the second time they've done that same route?
2: No, no, it's changed for every round. So okay. the qualifications will be different to the final. Um, so it's always a novel set of problems. And that kind of builds into that spectator sport where there's so much variety in the movement. Mm. And they can create something completely different.
1: So every round that you watch in climbing in the Olympics will be something new how do do they they don't change it for men and women is it the same routes for both or do they use different ones uh, they use different ones okay because i suppose and we'll get on to the physiology of it and the the strength requirements there would be de- differences between them that necessitate changes to make it as you said earlier possible to climb
2: yeah so there'll be general anthropometric sort of differences uh, but then there will also be sort of just the strength and power components between um the two sexes yeah. so they do tend to have different ones but it's also um just provides a bit more interest for, for the viewer
1: has there ever been uh, we we love a bit of sporting controversy on this podcast has there ever been a scandal where a climber gets hold of the root information before it goes up and then before the climber sees it
2: um <laughs> i'm uh, i think there's probably been quite a few things in the past actually yeah i mean so when they they go into a room called isolation, so yeah. it's very very strictly controlled. You can't have your phones in there, uh, you can't have any sort of ability to get information. Um, and I I'm I'm absolutely sure that there's there's controversy. There's uh, well I'm quite willing to put myself out there on this one. I'll, I'll give you a bit of controversy. So in a recent um, World Cup, I believe that a local wall may have had several movements and sort of practice problems that had been set in a local wall by the root setters and they just happened to come into the competition themselves so even though the problems weren't specifically the same there were movement patterns that if a climber had been training at that wall or a national team had been training at that wall um, it might have transferred over to the competition um, that, that's that, that's uh, <laughs> a, a bit of general gossip, but whether it's
1: true or not, I, I don't know. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of semi-related to that. Uh, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, help me out here, Mike. I'll, 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 <laughs> my train of thought will return in a moment. I was gonna ask you something related, I'll get to it. So what, I was, what
0: I'm fascinated about is how do you define difficulty? So when we look at the, at a wall, obviously when there's an overhang, that adds difficulty. Is, is the difficulty based on how far one hole is from another? And do they get to positions where they literally have to jump from hold to hold, or or holds always within reach of a climber?
2: Um, So I guess the the old way of thinking about it is um, that the holds would tend to be smaller and much much smaller, and they'd be further away. So. If we look back to that, what I described earlier, those roots of climbing, the difficulty of climbing outdoors is based and dictated by the rock itself, so the features of the rock. Mm. Um, the steeper the rock is, the more is going to be on your upper body, and the limiting factor will come down to those forearm muscles, the fitness and strength of those muscles. Um, as we've started to change away from modern competition climbing, it's moving further and further away from the representation of that rock climbing movement. So competitions used to be very like similar movements to outdoor climbing, but more recently in the last sort of decade or two decades, the movements that are involved are far more gymnastics. They're more interesting to watch and they're far more droppable. So they're less actually strength-based than they used to be. Uh, the reason for that is what you find is it's very, very hard to make a problem or for a route setter to create a problem, which is um, not just fully reliant on strength, because one climber will, if one climber can do it, most of them would probably be able to do it because um, if it's only relied on basic movements. But if you make something very droppable, so it's easy to fall off, it's slippy, it's hard to coordinate, you're much more likely to change the amount of attempts that each climber takes to do that problem so so these days, what we're seeing is um, a massive variety of movements which are very dynamic and very easy to, to misread or do incorrectly despite every climber being physically able to climb those problems. Mm.
0: What, what, what's, what, what is the most difficult movement? Is, is there such a thing as a difficult movement? In other words, if you're crossing hands or jumping or whatever, what, how would you describe a difficult movement and what would it be?
2: Um, to be honest, I, I just don't think I could. I think there's just so, there's so much variety. It's like, unlike, so, so I used to uh, be a gymnast where you would, you would have a routine, you would have set skills that you would implement during that routine and in certain orders. But in climbing, what we're seeing is you've got to link those different movement patterns, but each movement pattern could be done at a different rate. So you could do the most simple movement in the world And if the holds are extremely poor and it's very hard to hang on, then that movement becomes extremely difficult. Mm. But you could do a very big dynamic movement where you're jumping between holds. Actually, it looks really easy. Um, (laughs) So you might see loads of people like, putting stuff online of them doing big diners because that's what looks brilliant uh, and we'll definitely see some of those in the olympics but they might not necessarily be the hardest movements at all
1: so my my train of thought is is back in station what i was going <laughs> to ask related to that i'll try and do this seamlessly is are there a finite number of route planners in the world and because if there are would olympic climbers at this point be trying to anticipate what they're likely to be faced with in Tokyo because there must be certain patterns or signatures to certain route planners that don't exist for others. And so they're saying I'm going to encounter a lot of X, Y, Z as opposed to A, B, C. Is it Does it work that way or is it really just random?
2: So there's, um, there's now a set list of holds as well. So the climbing holds which are on the wall, uh, they go onto the structure. Um, Each there's a certain list of companies that do that and they have their own style of holds so they feel differently. And there is a list of set route setters that can work at these World Cups and the Olympic event. So you could say that there is a style pattern and the climbers will know they'll have brochures of all of the holds that are going to be available. So they'll Mm -hmm. have pattern recognition with the the holds that they're going to be using. They'll also understand the type of route setters that are going to be attending that event and also what they tend to, to throw at people. Um, the good thing about climbing and the thing that keeps it interesting is if we see any dominant features in the sport or even dominant nations um, that are particularly good at a certain style, the root setters will flip it on its head. So if we see that one person's always winning because they're brilliant at doing large dynamic movements and every time there's a dynamic movement they do it really easily, they won't set any what they'll do is they'll throw something really slow and uh, very more statically strength-based. Hmm. So the, it's, a, it's a really nice cat-and-mouse game between the root setters and the climbers. Hmm.
0: And then in terms of physiology, what would you describe as the, uh, what a climber has to have in terms of strength? I mean, we obviously know that you have to have strong fingers, but what other physiological strength areas need to be really good with climbers?
2: Um, so I guess like we've got the the three disciplines where we said obviously speed requires a lot of power in the the lower body and and full body power and explosive um being able to provide explosive force of the wall most climbers will be spend a lot of time focused on forearm strength and um specific fitness so we know that the sort of general anthropometrics of climbers um, there's no one height really that works. Like if you look at a load of the top climbers in the world, um, there's very poor correlation between height and climbing. There is a slightly better correlation between arm span or index difference between height and arm span and climbing, but once again, that is generally not a limiting factor in competition climbing. Uh, the reason for that is if one climber can reach a hold easily and another climber can't, then that's not fair. So the reach setters don't allow that to happen. Mm. So generally they'll set for a shorter climber, which is why we tend to see a lot of shorter climbers in the events. One common characteristic is body fat percentage tends to be very low. Climbers want to be as light as possible, and particularly in boulder and lead. um, We see a lot of climbers with um, lower muscle mass on their lower body and higher muscle mass on their upper body particularly in the forearms, if you see someone walking down the street and they have massive forearms, there's a good chance they're a climber. Um, <laughs> or they're
0: Popeye.
2: You, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Popeye Yeah. So basically he, it's
0: Popeye arms really, isn't it?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, Popeye had Popeye made a great, great climber. <laughs> but the, um, I the interesting part of this is um, we would that movement change, so the style of movement that's happening at the moment, the, the previously common features in climbers are now changing a little bit. So, like I said, forearm strength used to play a much, much bigger role in climbing performance in competitions, uh, and body weight did. Unfortunately, that has led to eating disorders being quite prevalent in the sport of climbing, and even a BMI kind of rule being brought in by the governing body hmm. uh, to make sure that athletes are staying healthy because What we saw is uh, athletes like fighters cutting, but also remaining very low uh, unhealthy body fat percentage for long periods of time.
1: So So, just to elaborate on that BMI rule, I know there's a similar thing I've seen in ski jumping. What's the climbing uh, policy and implementation of it?
2: I believe, you won't have to quote me on this, but I think it's around 18.2 score on the BMI uh you need to be scoring above that to be allowed to compete it'll either be 18.2 or whether that's the gb governing body or 17.2 but effectively there's a minimum standard bmi score that allows the competitor to take part if competitors below that then there'll be some sort of investigation to make sure that that competitor is is healthy obviously bmi has um very clear um limitations but I think it's it's a nice movement forward to kind of push the sport into a healthier zone, um, and like I was saying, the movement styles that are coming out now, we're actually seeing more reward for people being uh, higher muscularity and not necessarily just being extremely light anymore.
0: What's I mean, when you talk about forearm strength, obviously they do a lot of climbing, but are they? What specific exercises do you do to improve forearm
2: and hand strength? So, um, so, yeah, the forearm strength is just reliant on the that, the finger strength. So the application of force via the fingers. So we're looking at the strength of the muscle, but also the connective tissues to that muscle. So particularly finger tendons and the pulleys that go along um, that go along your fingers to keep those tendons in place. So what a lot of climbers do is we do a lot of um, training on fingerboards or climbing walls which is going to work that muscle and improve the tendon thickness and strength over time Uh, a lot of the problems that people come into is obviously muscles develop quickly tendons develop more slowly so it does take a lot of time for athletes to develop a high level of finger strength in the olympics what you'll find is finger strength plays a role like it's it's kind of like a gateway keeper to be able to even attend the event so as you might see in athletics where a VO2 max of sort of 70, 75 gives you the opportunity to take part. And then we have running economy. We have uh, all the other muscular components hmm. of that athlete dictating their performance. They have to have a base VO2 max generally to even be a competitor in that sport. Hmm. In climbing, I guess, finger strength is the same thing. So you'll see similar levels of finger strength across the board in the Olympic athletes, and they'll have trained that to to a similar standard.
1: Can you contextualize what that finger strength is like when I, for a climber compared to say, Mike and I who've, who've not climbed anything in a long time, except maybe a ladder, uh, how do you measure it? And, and what's the difference between the elites and the regulars?
2: So I guess finger strength can be measured through um, looking at finger, finger boards or testing. So how much weight that you can apply through your fingers. And we use sort of a training tool called a fingerboard, which is usually hung up above a door frame. It consists of loads of different sizes of holds and you hang from the, the digits of your fingers, whether it's all four fingers or two fingers or one finger and the different joints of those fingers. So you can see the bumps and the ridges down your fingers. For the people at home, the, the closer it is towards the end of the finger, the harder it's going to be to hold. So to kind of contextualize it, and I can see that you've not got a doorframe unfortunately behind you, but if anyone at home goes up to their doorframe and has a feel of that, and hopefully it'll be strong enough. So what most people climbers will be doing will be hanging off a hold that's like that. So it'll usually cover the the end pad of your finger. So from the last joint of your finger to the tip of your finger. So climbers will often train in that position. Elite climbers, would generally quite easily be able to hang off that door frame on one arm with additional weight. So they'll be able to lift their entire body off that one arm on around a 20 millimeter edge and hold that position. Um, so that one, one finger, like
1: one, one finger or like what hand?
2: Uh, it'll, be, it'll be four fingers, one hand, but okay. there will be climbers that can do on a door frame with one finger, uh, <laughs> one finger pad, just on one arm. Um, mm, so just- like most athletes in this event will be able to you see like a front lever uh, where people lift their bodies into a horizontal position from mm. a hanging position uh, they'll be able to do that on just two fingers one on each hand wow. uh, they'll be able to do pull-ups they'll be able to hang on two fingers um, so if you anyone at home wants to have a feel of that just try and hang off your door frame on one arm and you'll get an idea about what the base standard is to get into the sport at this level I can imagine that
0: core stability is obviously it's pretty much a, a key factor as well. Just being able to hold positions against the wall.
2: Yes, yeah, so core stability, um, sort of upper body strength, and highly a lot of the climbers are highly mobile and flexible as well. So the core stability plays a massive role in keeping you on the wall, particularly on the overhanging terrain. Um, but the most climbers operate sort of similar to dancers in terms of. Uh, their ability to apply force through a large range of motion as well. So mm. they'll have great core stability to hold a the position. Then they'll have a massive active range of um, movement in terms of being able to lift their legs and arms into positions which are relatively contorted at times, whilst maintaining core strength, um, whilst maintaining core tension, uh, and then apply force with their legs and arms in these different positions. So most of the climbers will probably in the Olympics will probably be able to do the splits. In all different directions, um, they'll have a very strong core strength, um, and they'll also have a very high um, upper body strength. So one arm pull ups, and so basic exercises like that are just standard for for these type of
1: climbers. What is the what is the typical pathway to become an elite climber? Because already in this interview, you've alluded a couple of times to gymnastics is that is that a common transfer from that sport into climbing or are we seeing young climbers specialize and if so how many years of training typically does it take to reach what will become Olympic level?
2: Um, So I I guess I mentioned gymnastics because uh, that that was sort of my background and I would definitely say uh, it has its benefits that you come into the sport with a lot of the physical physicality behind uh, the climbing movements but it Effectively, climbing comes down to a lot of movement economy and technique. And as we know from other sports, you usually learn good technique and skills because you're not as physically capable as your competitors. So for you to to compensate for that lack of physicality, you become technically more proficient. Mm. Um, As a gymnast coming into that, my technicality did not progress at the same rate as my peers. uh, And I relied far too heavily on the physicality. So... Gymnasts, we do see transferring across, but you still need to do it at quite a young age for, I think, that technical component to actually be developed. What we're, what we're now seeing is climbers starting from a very, very young age, sort of people going down the climbing wall at four or five. Um, we'll see people competing from the age of around nine in sort of national, uh, local competitions and most athletes will be prevalent in the sport both indoors and outdoors by around the age of sort of 11 12 these days so it's becoming more like a much younger sport because of the bodyweight component of outdoor climbing and the fact that these kids are much much lighter they can perform at an extremely high standard not quite the olympic standard not on the same problems but if they're able to hang on their fingers just as easily as an adult because of that body mass is so much lower, you can progress quite highly into the sport. So it's very exponential to begin with. Um, And then what we see around puberty when body mass starts to increase, that's when we start to see them perform at a higher competitive level. Um, There are people that have started later than that, but I think that's the way the sport's going. It'll be very specialized early on Um, And those people that can transfer from other sports as well is great because of the movement variety. But um, if you're not climbing from quite a young age, it will become harder and harder to become an elite level competitive athlete.
1: And is the peak then early 20s? And how long can you sustain that? Is there a a point at which flexibility and strength become limiting again with age?
2: Um, So we we generally say that early 20s, mid 20s would be sort of the peak for a lot of people in the competition scene, but um, we're actually seeing athletes that are getting a fair bit older into the early thirties that are still competing at the highest level. The reason for that is the the technical component, the movement pattern recognition and their ability to perform in competition. What's really interesting is actually that um, if you look at outdoor climbing and the physical attributes to go into outdoor climbing, which are similar to those of competition, we have people competing, uh, performing. Sorry, at the highest level, into their fifties. So even though it's a very strength, uh, highly flexibility-based sport, mm. some of the best climbers here in the country in the UK are sort of they just turned fifty, and it's absolutely amazing to see. It's a very lifetime-based sport, and I know I've got uh, I've got a client personally that I've worked with for he years. Um, he's not actually working with me at the moment, but he's uh, sixty-three. And sure. he was like, well, I've got a few more years before I'm going to start going down a hill, I think. And I think that's absolutely brilliant and he's an absolute beast. Um, but the fact that he can still outperform many climbers in the country in their twenties, hmm. sort of shows what the technical element of the sport is.
1: What are the most common injuries that a <clears throat> elite climber would be dealing with?
2: Um, so elite climbers generally will be that like, soft tissue injuries. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, we have. Um, a lot of force going through our fingertips and we've got the ability to to develop those muscles much quicker than those soft tissues such as the tendons and pulleys. Mm. So what we often see are pulley injuries. So if you imagine um, for anyone that not aware of what a pulley is, we've got the the tendon which runs from your fingertip down towards your forearm muscle. The muscle is kind of like that contractile force which is pulling the string going down from your fingertips. So it's pulling your fingers closed and tight. Um, if you were to attach that string from the forearm to uh, the fingertip and you pulled it tight, you'd see your finger would bend, but then the, you'd have a bowstring and you'd have the, the string going straight from the forearm to the fingertip without touching the rest of the wrist and so on. The pulleys are effectively those uh, soft tissues which are holding that string along the line of the finger and into the wrist. Um, so those pulleys take a lot of strain and that tends to be probably the most common injury that we see is in small tears or even full ruptures of those pulleys, which are some of the structural components of your fingers, fingers and forearms.
0: And then if you had to look at the Olympics, um, which nations do you think are going to come out and top and the ones to watch? I mean, are there nations that dominate the sport? And especially now that we've got this combined competition, is it difficult to make a prediction as to who will be more dominant than others?
2: Um, yeah, it's, it, it's getting more complicated, actually. So I would say um, Japan has actually dominated massively in the last few years. Um, they have an extremely good culture of competitive climbing and indoor climbing walls. Um, so the sport's growing so much around the world, but in Japan, it's it's just taken off. And I believe there might be around 200 climbing walls in Tokyo alone. Oh. Um and the competitive scene there is absolutely massive. So in the last few years, with this change in style, with the more gymnastic style, the Japanese climbers have dominated. But like I've said, um, the route setters know this, and they know what moves they like, so they can change things up. And <laughs> I wonder, I do wonder whether they'll do much for that in the Olympics, obviously being Tokyo Olympics. Um, but generally, there's, there's quite a nice spread across the world of – who's a better competitor? So we've got sort of Adam Ondra, who is the best climber in history. I would quite happily say, both indoors and out. He's won the world championships in the same year in multiple disciplines uh, from the Czech Republic. We have Janja Garvinet, who is an amazing female athlete, who's probably outperformed Adam Ondra in terms of competitions on the female side, who's from Slovenia. Uh, and then we've got a massive variety of climbers. So there's, there's 20 men, 20 women, competing in the Olympics and only two from each nation has been allowed so there's a nice spread across the field um, if any if you're allowed as many as you wanted there would be more Japanese in there and more Slovenians but generally I think there's quite a nice spread and there's definitely exceptions to the rules across the world.
0: And do you think, I mean, my final question is, do you think with the Olympics now taking on climbing that, that, that there's been a renewed interest? Well, not renewed, but is there more interest in climbing people coming to your um, training facility to, to, to and more interested at the sort of school level and even adult level?
2: Uh, Yeah, for sure. I I mean, I think it's grown massively. As far as I'm aware, the participation has gone up 30% per year the last few years, um, which is absolutely massive. And that's, um, I think that's globally as well. So for us uh, at Lattice Training, we offer training plans and we work with um, keen amateurs and elite climbers. And what we've seen in the last few years is a much, much bigger interest in training And people want to improve and get to a much higher standard from all the way from youth to keen amateurs that are sort of trying to train after work and around families and so on. So there's been a continual interest, but you're definitely right. It's growing more and more. And I do think after the Olympics this year, we're only going to see it exponentially increase from there.
0: It's going to be a few speed climbers coming to your facility to see how fast they can go. I'm certainly looking forward to seeing that. And uh, I've learned about a million times more percentage than I had uh, about climbing before this conversation. So thank you very much, Ali, for your for your time. And, and good luck. I know that you don't have any athletes that didn't make it to Olympics this year, but uh, good luck, I, I imagine, for world championships. When are the next world championships?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll definitely have quite a few guys there. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks very much. And. Um fingers crossed that it's a great event and everyone can enjoy it
1: great ollie Tour.
0: thanks thank very you. much for your time
1: thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports pod and on instagram at science of sport podcast